Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our uh, May 2023 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. The PCRF member promotes research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. And here with the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in medical education. A great big thank you to Limmer Education for sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of science in EMS education. I'm Megan Corey, and I'm here with Dr. Kim McKenna, with Katie O'Connor, Michael Caduce, and joining us in a little bit will be Dr. Bill Toon. Today, we're going to discuss this article. This is open access, so pull it and read it and reread it. This is published in uh, this year in BMC Medical Education entitled Clinical Reasoning in Undergraduate Paramedicine, Utilization of a Script Concordance Test. And you might recognize some of these authors. We've actually had Linda Ross on here before. Cam Gosling has been a, a researcher that we've uh, we've talked to before, you know, in, in different research circles, including on this uh, podcast. So uh, these are some great researchers that took the next step in something we talked about actually last year. Uh, on this uh, podcast. Now, thank you all for joining us today. We do want to remind you that you can use the chat feature on your screen to type in questions and comments. We'll bring those into the conversation. You can use the Q&A to introduce a, a question. And remember, if you miss any of these journal clubs, or maybe you get called away in the middle of one, you can always replay them and replay past episodes from our very own YouTube channel. This is at youtube.com slash at PCRS. PCRF at UCLA. And uh, remember that we also have, if you like anything uh, that you see, you can always uh, tag us on one of your favorite social media sites. Now, we do also want to announce that we have another special edition of the PCRF Education Research Journal Club. We'll be joining you live from Louisville, Kentucky again. We did this last year, and this year we're going to do it again. We are, we'll be live from Louisville um, and you, so if you happen to be at the Credit Con, at the Credit Con conference, you can actually join us. I believe it's in the Clifton room, um, but don't quote me on that. Go look at your uh, at your conference planner and see where we're at. But we will be there on Friday, June 2nd. Uh, this is a different time. So it's about an hour and 15 minutes earlier than our usual time, It'll be at 1145 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're not live in Louisville, Kentucky, you can join us online. So remember, you can register at prehospitalcare.org. So we're uh, that'll be next week. And that we're going to be looking at a couple of articles. Um, we're going to be looking at, at two of them, actually, uh, at this conference. One of them is, uh, both of them are open access, by the way. Uh, one is called the Paramedic Educational Program Attrition Accounts for Significant Loss of Potential EMS Workforce. That was recently published Actually, this was published, yeah, January 2023. I think it was revised, accepted 2023, February. So uh, you can pull this offline in JSEP Open. And a uh, really important um, topic, of course, the topic of the day in EMS and in other 
uh, healthcare professions. Then we'll also be wrapping in another study um, that is called the role of accreditation in the 21st century health professions education uh, report of an international consensus group. So um, we'll have Mike Miller will be joining us, the assistant director for the COA EMSP. Kim McKenna and I will both be there. So we'll uh, we'll have a great time digging into some more education research as it relates to uh, the workforce and accreditation. So another announcement before we dig into this great study, and that is that we have an abstract deadline. Remember, we've been announcing this monthly, and uh, we'll probably get a chance to announce it a couple more times from AccreditCon and from our next uh, uh, education research webinar. There is time, so get that data together, and you can submit an abstract uh, June 30th this month uh, or this year. is uh, It's not quite June yet. Um, this year, we're going to have an abstract deadline. You can go to prehospitalcare.org and uh, get all that information on submissions. Remember, even if your data are preliminary and you're just developing your study, uh, submitting an abstract is a great way to launch that off. So um, I want to encourage all of you educators out there who are researchers or want to be researchers. You know, if you're looking at something interesting and pulling data together, it's a great way to, to get started in research is to submit an abstract um, so prehospitalcare.org, and you can uh, head over to that website and submit. Okay, and again, uh, if you hear anything great today, don't forget to quote, tag, share, hashtag EMS research at PCRF at UCLA uh, on your favorite social media site. So let's dig in here. We're going to be looking at this study, Clinical Reasoning in Undergraduate Paramedicine, Utilization of a Script Concordance Test. Last year at this time, it was June of 2022, and I think Kim, uh, you might remember this, we looked at a systematic review of the literature that examined clinical reasoning tools used in clinical placement and simulation settings. And actually, Katie, you were on too, because I remember the simulation discussion we had. In These are in healthcare profession education programs, and they discussed the use of tools. So we had a great you know, overview of what tools like the OSCE and this you know, Lassiter clinical judgment rubric and the script concordance test came up as one of the most common tools used to uh, that that were valid and reliable uh, in medicine and nursing and in allied health education programs to examine clinical reasoning. And actually clinical judgment and clinical reasoning are, are different terms. We had a discussion about that and we'll probably dig into that a little bit today. So th these were, this came up, and I remember in that discussion distinctly, we talked about, wow, you know, we should be looking at this in EMS. Well, here it is, uh, one year later, and uh, we're looking at a study that did that and a group that did that. And they've got a, a really great thing going on uh, at that Monash University in EMS education and research and wrapping them in together. So these were Australian researchers at Monash University. Um, they, they uh, and let me just forward to their research question. Essentially, uh, you know, they have a, this is a great paper to read, by the way, in terms of the discussion, the introduction, if you want to, you know, kind of get their foundation for why they even did this. Uh, talking about getting to clinical reasoning, uh, how a student, it's a the skills that, that students have to develop you know, as they move from novice into you know a competent basic you know entry level practice and how does their cl clinical reasoning kind of compare to um, those of an expert 
So the, that's why it's called a concordance test. A script concordance test is how do they compare? How do the, the um, thinking process compare to another group? And in this case, it'll be experts. So the research question they had is, is the script concordance test an achievable and reliable option to test clinical reasoning in undergraduate paramedic students, keeping in mind that in Australia, it's a, a undergraduate degree. So this is, um these are gonna be third year students. Um, I'm not sure if it's a three year or four year program. We were talking about this um, before, but it, it's a uh, undergraduate students, I believe just before they're going to be going out on uh, what we would consider a capstone experience. So um, just a reminder of what a script concordance test is, and they go through this, but they also refer to it in one of their references, they refer to the script concordance test process for development, because you have to, it, it's not a plug and play, here's a packet, you know, run these already validated, you know, items. It's something that you develop based upon your, the, the practice in your, you know, region, but national standards too, I would assume as well, because you're developing it as a, um, as a uh, educators. So you, uh, it's a, um, essentially a script concordance test was developed out of the need for some type of way to evaluate clinical reasoning. It started as a diagnostic script questionnaire, and this evolved over time into this tool that's designed to evaluate clinical reasoning by taking into account the complexity and the often ambiguity that can accompany our real clinical cases. So this three-step process of developing a script concordance test is, uh, first of all, you have to create these clinical vignettes, so clinical case studies, you know, maybe a paragraph of a clinical case study, and the test items that come from real cases. So this is that development involves experts that get together. And in this case, it was the authors who had a, a lot of experience um, clinically were going to, they uh, developed the clinical vignettes, and it was three of the authors developed clinical vignettes and the test items. Uh, and then the next step is to select a reference panel um, of working clinicians. And so this is your team of experts and the reference panel, ideally, according to the, um, you know, the reference document of how to develop a script concordance test is ideally supposed to have 15 members. They ended up having 14 because one uh, ended up dropping off, but they had 14 expert members. Um, and that's the reference panel. And then you construct the scoring matrix and test it, you know, and then test the students. And so um, they had 82 third-year undergraduate students that they were going to be uh, testing. They developed 11 of these vignettes with 28 questions that were either related to a treatment or an assessment and a disease pathology, um, like I, I would imagine it would be like a differential diagnosis. It's kind of like the, the multiple choice questions that we see uh, where you have either a, you know, what do you suspect, meaning a differential versus a, what do you do, you know, a, a treatment decision. So it's, these vignettes usually have these, but, but instead of one correct answer, a, a script concordance test has a scale. I'm going to show you an example. So this is an example. I don't remember if you, know, if you remember this, Kim, when we did, and Katie, when we discussed this last year, this was an example from, you know, obviously from primary care, not, or from um, maybe emergency care. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, probably emergency care, but not from uh, the field, but it's an example of a case um, from, you know, an investigation section. In other words, there, it's a differential diagnosis type of a question. 
And you'll see a vignette, a case description, and then a, a, you know, a differential. So you have a description of a patient, then a differential. You're discussing the possibility of a pulmonary embolism. So that's your hypothesis. And then they give you an investigative action. If you're thinking of doing this, this test, you know, diagnostic test, and then you were to find new information, what, what would that do to your original hypothesis? And there's a Likert scale of how likely it would change in one direction or the other. Um, and you'll see these scores. So this is from another, this is from how to develop a script concordance test. Now I'm gonna show you the example that they put in their article. So here is one example of one of the 11 vignettes, 28 questions. So you see there's three questions within this one vignette. The total number of questions they have were 28 within 11 vignettes. And so a script concordance test looks like this. This is an example. So they give you a basic description of a patient who's got shortness of breath and chest pain, who's older, who's holding a, an inhaler and a spacer. Um, I'm not sure if that there's a, a missing number there speaking in words only. I'm, I'm assuming there'd be, you know, a couple, a number there, but, and then an oxygen saturation that's 78%. Then it says, and there's three different things. If you plan to do this action, and then you discovered this condition, what would that do to your management, your decision on that management? Would you consider, reconsider it? Would you say, no, it's still indicated, or it's strongly indicated, or it's strongly not indicated or no impact? So you have that Likert scale. And at each step, you have these different things. So one is, you, you know, you're going to administer another, you know, bronchodilator and that you found out the patient's hypertensive and on diuretics. So the assumption there is we're now pointing that this patient is, you know, a heart failure patient. Does What does that do to your original decision? Um, if you were going to do CPAP and you found out they had COPD, what would that do to your decision? Or if you were going to administer sublingual nitro and you found out they were in rapid AFib, what would that do to your decision? And so this is um, one example of an item on a script concordance test. And like I said, they had 11 vignettes, uh, 15 panel, or sorry, 14 panel members that then took this and then 82 third year students that also took this. Um, they were prepared ahead of time as to what a script concordance test is and how to perform it. So that made a big difference, you know, to uh, especially for students to prepare them. And then um, they ran this test and compared the results and it's concordance. So you're comparing the results of one uh, group to another. So let me just open it up and, um, you know, just see what, what you guys were thinking when you saw, you know, when you look at this type of tool used for clinical reasoning. Michael. Thanks, Megan. I always think of a choose your own adventure book when I see script concordance, um, because it's sort of what you're doing. You're being given a scenario and then you can choose which direction you should go. And the script concordance says there is a right way to go and a wrong way to go where on your choose your own adventure book. If you ever read those, I remember reading those all the time when I was a kid then sometimes you would get out of whatever situation you were in and sometimes it would only get worse. So um, whenever I see script concordance, I'm like, oh, I love choose your own adventure books. Um, it's always where my mind goes. So the other thing I we talked about before we started the podcast is how labor intensive this is to do. 
to get 14 or 15 experienced clinical providers together and develop a scoring system. I think if I put 15 experienced paramedics in one room, I'll get 17 or 18 different opinions. Mm. Um, so I think just the amount of time it took to go into this, uh, bravo to the authors for having the time to do this and then do the statistical analysis afterwards. But the, just a couple of my own thoughts. Yeah. I, I just, really love it though. Like exa exactly because it's hard when Mike's like, there's more than one right answer and then everyone has a different opinion. Like um, I'm thinking of a, we just had a trauma test for finals for the semester. And one of the questions on the exam was you're treating a burn patient. Should you give them normal saline or lactated ringers? And I was like, man, that really depends on who you ask. How do you pick a, the right answer there? You yeah. know? Um, and so I think that this kind of testing is just so much more applicable to the field versus applicable to a textbook. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the key things that they that they emphasized when they were developing these questions was that they did need to be a little bit ambiguous and not entirely clear because that's often how things are in the field. And that's what makes making clinical judgment so difficult a lot of times is you don't have all the information and it depends. You know, that's, uh, I know that uh, the learners in my class always got tired of me saying, well, it depends. Yes. And if you look at how much information is them, you know, it's, there's, there's not a lot of information there. And so that makes the, the question more. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Kim, that um, I was going to laugh there too. It depends. I, I can see uh, particular students in my head with their eye roll every time I would say, it depends um, because it does. One of the things I was thinking too was um, what Katie was saying about the preceptors. If, if Because I, I was thinking if we were to do something like this, getting a group of experienced preceptors is that's a, that's a key group and involving preceptors in the students' clinical reasoning um, process early before a capstone experience, I think, um, would be very interesting, and uh, I'm curious how how much variability there would be among you know the preceptors in terms of this. It also might be a, a good test of of you know preceptor open mindedness or you know um, whether or not they consider something that maybe the program or that, because remember the authors here are the ones who developed the items. So how much concordance was there between the preceptors and the program? Um, we see that in the original result. Uh, and it, it'll, you know, that that part is, is kind of interesting too. How much, um, I think in, in the article, in the, right, just before the methods section, uh, they were talking about um, how these episodes, that, that complex, paramedics have complex patients with multiple comorbidities across the whole biopsychosocial um, spectrum. And then it says the episodes are, you know, they don't always fit. Management decisions don't always fit into a, a right or wrong category. And I have a note next to it, tell that to preceptors and educators, because how many times do, do we have to say, well, you know, how many times, Kim, did you have to say it depends, but then you had another educator, you know, say, no, it doesn't, you know, you do it this way, period, you know? <laughs> And it's getting harder now because honestly, when I used to, when I first started teaching back in the, you know, late eighties, um, there was one answer a lot of times for many things, but now it depends a lot, not only on, you know, what is the national standard and, you know, it depends on the problem, what that standard actually is, 
what does your medical director actually say within your service? So when they're going out to these different services, they're seeing different mm -hmm. things. And so the, the right answer often depends on where you're practicing. Um, so it, it gets a lot harder, first of all, to teach it, but which makes it doubly difficult for the student to know what is the right answer, because seriously, that's what they want to know. Just tell me what the right answer mm -hmm. is. But that's, you know, the, you know, we'll sort of talk later about um, the, you know, that the, the complexity, ambiguity, and uncertainty involved in clinical cases. Doesn't matter what kind of a model guideline you put out, it cannot account for all of the variables that you're going to see related to a specific patient. And so that's why they say that, you know, their definition of clinical reasoning is education plus experience plus application to that specific patient that you have right in front of you, which I thought was really good, but I wish they also had reflection on. on Thank you. <laughs> I thought of you too, because they use the term that clinical reasoning is a cognitive and metacognitive process. And so one of the things that I had to in here is what about, can you get a, a text field here to, to indicate why a student would choose one over another and, and to get, uh, to get to their actual thought process behind it, you know, text fields or, or discussion or something with, with a, a preceptor or, or whoever, yeah, to get at that and to reflect on why. Because one of the things that struck me is a student might, it might be a confidence issue. You know, how often would a student pick strongly in any category? Um, so I'm, I'm just curious about, uh, uh, there's so many studies that could come out of this. That's the other thing. How many of you were thinking, okay, there's at least a dozen studies I can think of off the top of my head, you know, comparing a student, and they actually mentioned some of it in the limitation section, comparing students at different levels, trying to document the progression of learning. Katie? May I really want to compare like what we consider experts regionally, because the United States is so like, I just being a, not on East Coast or in California, I see this all the time. I'm like, they, uh, my students are always asking me like, oh, well, would you take this airway? And from where I practice, we had a lot of pharmacologically assisted intubation in pediatrics and in adults. And so like my clinical reasoning would be like, yeah. And I think a flight medic would have the clinical reasoning of take the airway. Mm -hmm. But in California, where it's not even in your scope of practice, you probably don't have that clinical reasoning, even if you're a experienced person and considered an expert. So I think I, like, I would be just interested in the regionality of this in our country. Yeah, I agree. I think um, and I wrote that in my margins too, who should develop these and, and maybe with a, do you develop it with your, in California, especially where you have regional and local protocols, do you develop it with lo local protocols in mind? Is this a good thing to run just before the capstone field internship so that they can, um, you know, there's concordance between the preceptor and the student in terms of clinical, you know, decision-making. I know they're not, they're supposed to be developing it, but so there's at least discussion or reflection on it, like Kim was saying. So many different uh, things could come out of this. Um, speaking of the who, they did talk about the background of the reference panel. So you had um, ALS paramedics, four ALS paramedics, um, intensive care paramedics, there were five, and then helicopter EMS, there were five. And that I, I'm glad they they broke that down because like like you said, Katie, there there is a difference, and I'm I'm assuming there would be a difference too. And in Australia, but um, maybe not as much. 
in terms of what is anticipated, and the minute someone gets out there and starts working and practicing, um, you know, you do get localized to whatever you're doing, whether it's an, in a hospital or in a field. I think you get localized to your formulary, your protocols, your whatever. So um, I guess that that kind of comes to how do you, which questions do you develop and how gen, how generic do you stay um, when you're developing questions too? So we're so used to the algorithmic approach in many ways that, you know, how do you take that algorithmic approach and put it into an, you know, a, one of these questions? So that, that might be something too. We've talked about, uh, you know, the, let's talk about this, you know, tachycardia algorithm in ACLS where you see adenosine um, as, you know, indicated for wide, regular, wide complex, regular tachycardias in a patient who has a pulse and is, you know, not unstable. Um, and every single time I have, you know, the students will say, you know, when they're learning this, they learn, learn it with an algorithmic approach instead of sort of, you know, digging a little deeper and they'll, you know, automatically say, okay, I'm going to use adenosine and locally. And, you know, I don't know how far uh, regionally, we really don't see that. And we certainly don't see it in our local protocol. So it's an interesting, you know, how would that fare in a script concordance test? That's a great example, uh, you know, and you're talking about formative and you were, you mentioned earlier, like uh, understanding the rationale for why people gave certain answers, how much that could inform you as a formative exercise. I was listening to the higher uh, teaching and higher education podcast uh, recently. And one of the faculty, one of his questioning techniques is to call on people, but then his strategy is uh, give me the right answer. But if you don't know the right answer, give me an answer you know is wrong and explain to me why you know it's wrong. Because that is yeah. one of the steps in critical thinking and analyzing information, right? Knowing, okay, I know this is wrong. I still don't quite know what the right one is, but why is this wrong? And then that really promotes that clinical decision or that critical thinking and analysis within the classroom. Anyway, off on a tangent, but I- No, but that's a great one because the A drugs, we always call them the A drugs when students mm -hmm. first learn. And I think this is universal. Yes. Um, that the A drugs, they confuse atropine, adenosine, amiodarone mm -hmm. universally. They'll say, okay, I'm going to give atro wait, is that, which one is that? And we want them to talk it out so that they talk out those little things that, that always seem to come up, but that's a really, that'll be another one. You can tell me which one is wrong <laughs> if you know it. And, and yeah. why would it be wrong? Why would why? it in that situation? The why, the why, the mm -hmm. why that's always so important. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, you know, when I look at this, I, I had a, a question too, how would they perform if they could write and reflect rather than, you know, selecting a Likert scale or both, how about if they could look it up? So what about open resource testing and open resource, because looking up something and seeking and finding retrieval practice is a is a best practice in education so how how would there's all kinds of little offshoot studies that could come using a script concordance um and learning and megan i just want to say that they were really specific in the paper to say that they didn't want to have something that they had to just fact recall and i think this is so important yeah. that we really need to get away from fact recall um like you're not going to see a rule of nines question on script concordance, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's, or, you know, even a drug dose, you see, there's not doses here because we want to get people to look stuff up versus, you know, yeah. trying to 
my own memory. Yeah, true. Kim, did you have something? I was just going to say, if the questions are really well written, even if you can look things up, because because it's not going to be like you're going to find the answer on page 239, mm -hmm. because they are ambiguous and they involve a lot of different facets of information. You know, if you had if if you had unlimited time, it would probably help them. But within a time test, if the questions are well written, it's only going to help them to a certain extent. They're going to have exactly. to be able to synthesize a lot of information to be able to answer these questions. Sometimes looking up and seeking and trying to find the answer will help them understand that it is ambiguous. Um, so I I know uh, years ago we did this with students who were they were getting from the field, you never do certain things, you know, you never do this, that's dangerous, you can, you know, kill a patient. And I said, great, find me that reference that says that you can. And they were stunned that they could not find a reference that it had, you know, that as a matter of fact, they found references that said the opposite, uh, that it could be helpful. And so I was like, okay, so this is, I'm just letting you know, it's, it's not that clear. It depends. Yeah. And the other advantage is it gets them to use the book as a tool Yes, um, and really become more familiar with it rather than just saying that they've read it when maybe they haven't read it or they haven't read for meaning. They haven't really. Yeah. So and I, I love the idea of that as a formative exercise. I think that that's could be extremely helpful. Yeah. Yep. Oh, hello. Hey, Bill. Hello, Bill. So, Kim, just uh, since you know that I'm working on this project that has me in the textbooks a great deal, I find it a challenge because I sometimes go looking for something and I can't find it at all in the textbook. And that's disconcerting to me because to me it's very common practice stuff. So I don't know if the textbook's always the answer, but they have to go out and research it, but maybe just not mm -hmm. their textbook. Right, right. Well, it may not be the textbook. The registry just published a paper. Actually, uh, it just came out on a t the table of authorities, which I'm sure you, if you're not familiar with, you'll become familiar with soon. And it sort of says, well, you have to be able to reference the questions. And then what is the hierarchy? Like what is sort of the gold standard? And um, so, but it might be that there's a piece from here and a piece of the question from here. And so mm -hmm. it's not always going to be crystal clear because you're going to have to have multiple references to be able to tie together the different pieces that sort of come out in different questions. Yeah, it's not. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Really looking forward to that. So, yeah, that's a big project. And the challenge will be is to keep that current because that's going to constantly change. Mm hmm. Well, the model clinical guidelines are another one, the NSMSO 2022, I believe is the year model clinical guidelines that provides almost like a national level, uh, I don't want to say protocol, but um, it is sort of at least a, a, some other reference for, and then the education uh, standards references it. So that, that's really helpful to tie all those together. And the, just a point about the national clinical guidelines, and I don't have an answer to this, but I wonder at what reading level are those written at? Mm, yeah. Because that's a that to me is still a big issue is when you write something, is it written at a, a, a reading level that everyone's gonna understand or not? And I've and I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't I have to get off my tail and and do some stuff to figure out how would I measure that and then 
it's not that it's a bad thing having these type of things, but are are they at the comprehension level of the providers? Yeah, that's such a great point. And also uh, just expanding on that, um, you know, in, in writing these, getting to the issue of inclusion, if we're trying to include everyone um, as in having an opportunity to be an EMS professional, then, um, you know, what type of thing, test can we come up with as unilingual, you know, <laughs> unicultural uh, folks, you know, maybe people, and and with these kind of learning standards that we've had for so long that we need to stretch on. So um, I, I think that's a, a great point. So uh, as we develop these, these tests is in, with inclusivity in mind, you know, trying to think of all types of students, all types of learners and, and that kind of thing. Uh, there's a great article called Making Thinking Visible, too, uh, that was years ago about uh, something like this. How do you make that thinking, that process visible uh, and out loud so you can hear the clinical reasoning happening um, in the student? So and I think a lot of um, educators have probably different examples of this. All right, looking at their results then. Um, so this is the script concordance test score comparison in table one. And what we're seeing is there's, and I, I, you know, we didn't have, uh, the authors are in Australia. And um, so we didn't, I didn't stretch out and, and grab uh, Dr. Ross and, and pull her in here, but uh, I'm assuming that the mean test in the reference panel is, is a comparison to what the, the authors came up with as the test designers. So is that, is that a safe assumption you think? that the 80 um, score that you see is is a, is the concordance with the authors, right? <laughs> well, I, no, I would think that it would be the concordance with the experts that they had take the test. So the, the authors developed the test and then mm -hmm. they had that group of experienced providers take it and their mean score, what, uh, the way is I- Is 80. Is 80, right. Yeah, but I mean, 80, that, who are they comparing that score to? I mean, you know what I'm saying? The experts develop the test, but where does the 80 come from? Does that come from the experts taking that test and saying, this is what I would say, that it's strongly indicated, you know, strongly contraindicated? Oh, right, yeah, yeah, it must have. It must have, right? Is right. that what you're getting they to, Katie? They had to award credit because they had to award, they awarded credit or partial credit. Or partial credit, yeah. Like oh, I thought it was the average score, like the plus two minus two. So let me go back here and see. Uh, whoops, wait a second. I'm just it says in the results, the results of the comparison between reference panel and student group are in table one. The difference between the reference panel mean score of 80 and the student yeah. mean score. So what it must I, be the average score. Oh, they said in accordance with literature by using the aggregate scoring method. Yeah, I think I would have to look that up and figure out how that, where does the 80 come from was what I was sort of trying to decide. Yeah, so if they there were with literature, the, they had answers that gave partial and full credit. Okay. Yeah, so, that was right answer. Like, yeah. <laughs> so you have like, you, say your group of educators are the experts and they develop the test. Um, and then the reference panel takes it, that 80 is is their score basically. And now what we really want to do is compare it. The more important thing really here, because your reference panel, I think of them as the preceptors, the one who are going to, you know, essentially um, what they were doing was saying they're the experts. They're the experts. And then here's the students and how do they compare in terms of their scores? 
Um, so it was, and that's concordance. So it's script concordance test. That makes sense. So we're seeing a statistically significant difference between the reference panel and the students. And, and the reason they ran this entire thing was just to see, it, it's almost a feasibility study. Does this work? Does using this type of a test work to evaluate clinical reasoning? And by seeing, just by the nature of seeing the difference between the experts and the students, they're saying, yeah, we it makes sense. It makes sense that clinical reasoning scores are hot, much higher, uh, statistically significant, um, or lower, I should say, in the students than the reference panel or, you know, opposite higher in the expert panel than in the novices. So the, but the other big thing here is the range that, that to me was um, not surprising, but really I'm, I'm sure they were uh, pleased with that result because it really does illustrate this, um, you know, the decision-making you, you have students that are the range of scores, you can see the median and interquartile range of each of these. And the spread of scores, the min and max for students is, you know, 42 all the way up to 86. And for the reference panel, it's much narrower. The range is, you know, 15 points versus 44 points for the students. So um, that kind of made sense to me. And it must have been sort of pleasing to see this. There were 82 students, I believe. So those are, you know, a good number of them. Um, to get this started. Uh, so what did you guys think of this? I wasn't so surprised that there were some students with low scores, but the fact that they had a couple of students that had super high scores yeah. was really interesting. And so what was the difference? You know, they acknowledged that, you know, there were some limitations because of COVID, you know, being the year that they did it. And so was it a difference in the clinical experiences that they'd had? And yeah, that was the interesting thing to me that a couple of the students scored extremely, extremely high. Yeah, Mike. I appreciate that the author set this up by saying we're going to expect some differences. We've sort of chatted a little bit about it, but I appreciate the author said clinical judgments and clinical reasoning are made in the field. That's where this comes from. So I appreciate that they noted that, hey, we're going to expect a little bit of this. I would have been really interested to have seen how this compared if you put some first year students through it. Right. Hopefully they've gained some reasoning skills between their first year and their third year. Certainly they're not to the point of being out in the field yet. Um, but I, I also made me think, I wonder if they changed some of their testing. We mentioned ACLS and the tachycardia where there's sort of one right answer for everything, but all the courses are like that. The NAMT courses are like that. The mm -hmm. National Registry to the, to the most part is like that, except for some of the choose multiple choices. Mm -hmm. So really we've educated our students to pick one right answer and then we've put them into a situation where they can pick multiple. So I just wondered if this changed some of the tests that they um, asked, but um, appreciate when you set the standard of like, we expect this result to be lower, maybe not two standard deviations. Yeah. Um, but yeah. we expect it to be lower. Yeah. Katie? Uh, it's not super surprising to me. I think that some of the people who developed the test were also the educators teaching these students. So I think there might be like a little bit of bias there. Like, especially if you have a mentor, you might be tending to answer, have reasoning similar to them if you've gone three years mm -hmm. with them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. And I, what I appreciated too, was in there, that section, I can't remember if it's a discussion or, or, limitations section, they were talking about how it was in the discussion. They were talking about those extremes of scores. Uh, the, the couple that, that I think it was two students um, did better than the reference panel. And they mentioned like, it would be great to compare, like what are, um, what are the differences between what are factors that may contribute to better clinical reasoning in students 
um, versus others. And then they did the same with the low scoring students and said, what are some of the factors that can impact this? And maybe um, what are the resources that they need to help with clinical reasoning? So I thought that was a, a great point that you can actually, that raises the issue of these are not just evaluation tools to assess students. Um, assessment for teaching and learning is also kind of assumed, I think, in some of the things that they're saying, which, which we know testing is not just used for, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, retrieval practice, testing, um, assessment is not just used for, you know, evaluating a student and scoring them, determining, you know, these high stakes, you know, exit points, but it's also, it, it, it's a powerful teaching tool. So that made me think what this could be used as a powerful teaching tool as well. I, I thought a good segue from what you just said, Megan, and what uh, Laura had mentioned in the chat, which is, um, you know, what's what's a good takeaway from this? And I think two things that come to my mind as an educator is one is I, I continue harping on my educators that we don't have to make them masters of the clinical reasoning before they go into the field, right? I want them to be able to do an assessment without it, a cheat sheet yeah. in front of them, right? I want them to be able to walk into a situation and recognize when the scene is not safe. But I recognize there are many things they're going to learn in the field. And this study re-emphasizes to me, we don't have to make them mastery before they go into, and this is a three, these are three-year programs. So they've been in paramedic school for three years, probably probably none of us have done that, right? We're all one year, two years of paramedic school, and we're recognizing the level at which we need our students to be at before they go into the field. I want them to be competent, but I don't necessarily need them at mastery. And this study supports that and says, even if we put them in school for three years, we're not getting them there with the sound reasoning that they would be if they were, you know, seasoned paramedics or seasoned providers. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a couple of things, Kate, uh, Katie, you had something, and I think Bill after that. Yeah, it's just interesting because I was take I had the like almost an opposite takeaway from what Michael was having. Um, and I was just thinking of how necessary it is for us to change our education to get them better. And this might be because I'm acutely aware. Um, my students graduate and then in Sonoma, they have 10 calls before they're let loose as a single role medic. So their level of like experience they get post paramedic school is 10 calls. And that to me is just like horrifically frightening as the person who signs off that they can go do that. Um, so I think the, the takeaway I had was we really need to be structuring our education so that we're getting more clinical reasoning and judgment. Um, and we need to be doing this probably earlier. Yeah. Bill? And I was going to say, I support what Katie says. Uh, when I was working in Kansas, a new employee was... Uh, in the probation period of time for a year. And it was only at the end of that year that they could move away from their FTO into independent practice. But separate of that, let's look at how we develop physicians. Just because someone finishes medical school doesn't mean they can go out. They have to go through uh, multiple years of their residency, and they're really working on those individuals developing their critical thinking and decision-making and, uh, you know, so I, I don't have the answer because I know the industry would scream, you know, if we tried to keep people longer because they want people and they've always wanted people and some of the limitations to the, the expansion of EMS has been, I can't afford to have someone gone for a year to, to develop them. You know, so it's we have many factors that that work against us. But again, I'm in more favor of more, not less. 
I, I like that you're both of the last comments are taking it also to the transition to the workforce because we've talked about this a lot here, uh, which is how how do we transition? These students are like, okay, you, you're you're ready now, get out there. And now, what what is best practice in a new grad program? Um, wh what's controlling? You know, we have residency programs that are that have accreditation. We have nursing new grad best practices that are you know have national publications behind them that support them. So. And do we, you know, what are the best practices for new grad paramedics? Maybe that would make preceptors a little less um, nervous about, you know, um, moving students to competency when they're, and, and having different definitions of baseline competency. Um, so I, I think preceptors are really a key population here. And I'm curious what people were thinking about um, in terms of what they would like to see, like what, what would be your number one study that you would do after reading this? What would be your thing? Would it be evaluating matching with preceptors and students using a script concordance test? Would it be, you know, um, looking at first year versus second year versus third year, you know, your, your entry level versus others? EMT, would we change the teaching and in EMT before they even get to the advanced level? Uh, what, what do you guys think? Anybody think of a research design while they were reading this? I just want to say yes to the thing you said last, like change the way that we teach EMT because the, the technician model just destroys any chance at clinical reasoning. And what yes. Kim was saying is when they get so upset when you say it depends, because we don't say that in EMT as much as we probably should. And I'm not saying, you know, just generally, um, and Mike can speak more to this, but I think he had a great example at UCLA where it didn't like, even when he gave them the manufacturer recommendations, they were so stuck on, you must do it this way. This is the way. And it's, it just destroys them when they get to paramedic trying to do clinical reasoning. Yeah, I can't agree more, Katie. Um, when trying to get students to accept that there's this big gray area in the middle of healthcare, and it's not just EMS, it's nursing, it's medical school. Um, I would love to see how much clinical reasoning students come in with and then match it. So for paramedic school, I'd love to, we do entrance exams where we see, okay, where, where do our students lie um, in terms of general math and in skills like that. So I love to see how much um, clinical reasoning skills they bring from EMT school, because I'm in a similar boat as everybody else. I bet they're not bringing a ton in, which is actually de probably depends a little bit on if you require para, um, EMTs to have experience before coming to paramedic school. But to me, this sort of re reaffirms having some experience probably does help you in paramedic school. If you have, we could, we could in essence prove it with this study by um, looking at clinical reasoning for those entering paramedic school. I think that's a great study, Mike, you should do it. But also not only do they have experience, but do they have experience team leading? because many EMTs are not in a team lead role in the system that I uh, have worked in. And, uh, you know, maybe they're on the engine and they're never, you know, they're never leading a call or maybe they're always with a paramedic partner and they're never leading a call. And, and then are those people different? Like, do they have different reasoning skills? And I would wager the answer is yes. Yeah, how about uh, Bill? Did you have any research ideas in mind? And I like that that last one is is it would be interesting to be able to know what that baseline is. And then Kim's point is absolutely correct. For some reason, compared to when I started 
in my career 48 years ago, uh, EMTs were the schnizzle. You know, they they did it all. And um, there were very few paramedics. And I actually think we should go back to the model of a lot more EMTs out there running calls, taking care of patients and very few paramedics. But uh, that's hearsay, according to a lot of yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, William Schneiderman had a comment um, in the chat, you know, that, you know, when a new grad or student is mentored by in, in their system by a paramedic who maybe hasn't kept up, you know, that's also a kind of a problem, you know, and oh, yeah. because that person may not be an FTO, they may not have the skills for mentoring, they may not be up to date with everything. So, there are a lot of system problems that we need to fix in EMS for sure. I would yeah. throw that out there too, to the medical directors who are not as up to date, right? Thank so you. we're, we have, we're required to teach research in initial paramedic education programs. And then we go out there and they're doing protocols that have the wrong drug doses that are still backboarding patients that are not up to date with the standards. It makes it real hard. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So um, I just want to move on to this uh, next table that they had, because just like um, most uh, studies, you'd like to actually see, okay, what, what did they think about this? Um, they did a student evaluation section. I'm actually surprised they didn't do a panelist evaluation as well, um, meaning having them evaluate the test itself. What did they, did they agree or strongly agree or disagree, strongly disagree with that? That the actual test itself, the student, the, the um, script concordance test, was well-defined and communicated, simple and easy to follow, sufficient, allowed sufficient time. Did it accurately reflect clinical reasoning? And was it uh, taught and tested in your undergraduate education program, which is here? And you, you notice that high score in sufficient time and in taught and tested in undergraduate education, not surprisingly, because the authors themselves were the educators. So um, we would assume that they would, like Katie said earlier, develop the test that they're you know, based upon, and it says it in the paper, based upon what, what is taught. And then, you know, simple and easy to follow, 61% of them, um, you know, reported that. So the majority, but just a slight, and then accurately reflected clinical reasoning, about 60% also, um, which is interesting to hear that from the students. I'd love to hear that from the panelists. Uh, and then well-defined and communicated, about 71%. So uh, all of them in the positive, a little bit lower, you know, than others. I was a little bit surprised they didn't do it too. They didn't ask the panelists if they felt this was a, you know, what they felt of the test. Okay. So um, the last thing I wanted to kind of bring up and, and pull Kim in on here was, um, you know, and, and I should first start by saying that the, the authors had a, a great discussion section uh, and a sec section on their, their limitations uh, of the study. It was only one class group, not multiple, it's only one institution, it's an undergraduate education program. Uh, you know, they they had uh, just a little bit less than, than what they wanted in the reference panel in terms of numbers. But uh, they do outline that, you know, this isn't an easy thing to measure, trying to measure clinical reasoning. And there are terms that we throw out there, clinical reasoning versus clinical judgment, clinical decision-making, and they're slightly different. I wanted to pull Kim in on this one because this is from an article that we discussed last year also that was published that you were part of. Um, and this was in the National Registry's uh, article on designing a clinical judgment kind of scheme. Sure, this article sort of set the table for the new ALS 
exam, you know, because first of all, you have to define what is clinical judgment. And so it's, you know, every author sort of, there's a lot of times that clinical, critical thinking, uh, clinical reasoning and clinical judgment are sort of used synonymously. And um, so really in the article that uh, uh, Mihaela Gijou um, um, authored, uh, I was on that team, um, she sort of really sort of says critical thinking is more like the analysis phase and that that clinical reasoning, which these authors also say is that metacognitive process that you use to come to a decision. And then that clinical judgment is actually the decision. It's the diagnosis that you come to about that particular patient and uh, the decision that you come to about what kind of care that patient's going to need. And so then that definition was then applied to uh, this model that was that we created um, that said, okay, clinical judgment in EMS is a little different than in some of the other medical professions because it is a continuum. It is in all medical fields, right? But in mm -hmm. EMS, it's a continuum that actually begins when you get that call, that dispatch information. And then in route, you might get updated information that's going to kind of change your judgment on the scene when you actually see the patient or even before you see the patient, often you get additional information that causes you to continue to analyze what you're thinking about might, what might be happening, come to sort of preliminary differential diagnoses and then revise them or take action. And then continuously, it's a continuous cycle that even continues, you know, obviously during transport and then uh, posting care of the patient. So, and the other big things that sort of are the overarching things that are important to that are the leadership that the, the paramedic has to have in order to be able to uh, get those things to happen, uh, the communication skills to be able to obtain the correct information. And then, um, you know, what kind of accurate information are you getting from the patient, from the bystanders, what environmental factors are influencing your decision, you know, is it a dangerous scene? And then your factors, which these authors sort of address, like, what is your education? How much are you keeping up on your protocols? Uh, how much experience do you have? Are you tired? You know, are you burned out perhaps? Mm -hmm. And um, so all of those things sort of are the things that sort of relate to clinical judgment in EMS. So maybe that's more than you wanted, but. <laughs> no, this also, um, because the, the, the script concordance test is one kind of tool used. And I think it can actually be used for teaching as mm -hmm. well as, um, as you know, assessment at particular points, but it it's uh, it gets at the process and and like you said, Kim, that that whole this is an, an um, you know a diagram or a visual that helps us kind of uh, break down that process. But it's not just in this. The, the one thing we haven't talked about a lot, and Katie, I think this is your area of expertise here, is simulation based learning all the way throughout, you know, from the moment they step into EMT school all the way, you sort of mentioned, you know, we need to teach differently. And I'm going to assume that that's what we're talking about is simulation-based learning that incorporates all of these kinds of uh, tools. Yeah. And just like what Kim was saying at the very beginning of this is it's what's the most important part of the learning and the teaching is 
why did they make that choice? Mm-hmm. So like I usually say the WTF, what's their frame? What's their frame? Why were they choosing that? Because that's where we can, as educators, help change the frame so that they have the right frame of reference to be making these clinical judgments we want them to be making. Um, and I think that if you are an educator right now who's doing any type of teaching or uh, educating, you need to be thinking of how does this translate to field practice? Because if you're in a classroom having them do intubation on a table, that's not helping them in any way translate to the field practice. We don't mm-hmm. ever have people on tables like that, you know? So fine. I think there's arguments about novice learners the first time they've touched equipment. I, I'll give them that. But if you're just doing a checklist of scene safe, BSI, jazz, hands, walk in the room, and not actually presenting them with things like rugs that they could trip over or fake plants that need to be moved, you're not helping them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially, actually, it could directly hurt them because just saying something might give them the feeling that they've exonerated themselves from any need to check for scene safety. So, yeah. And I was just going to add, you know, to what Katie said, like the, you know, the new exam, which goes live on July 1st, 2024, just a little advertisement here in case you weren't paying attention. (laughs) Um, um, I actually took the new exam. Uh, for my research uh, this year. And uh, it's it's really interesting because it does cause you to um, do some of the things that you would be doing in a really good simulation debriefing. Like, why was that piece of information not important to you? Why did you prioritize doing this first versus this first? And so I, I think that simulation can just be so powerful in building these skills because you can control the variables and you can control kind of what they can learn in that situation. And then kind of that reflection at the end where you can kind of pull it out of them, I think is so powerful. Yeah. And just to note um, for folks, the script concordance test has been evaluated in simulation. Um, That was part of that systematic review. They looked at not only, they looked at clinical placement and simulation settings. So they looked at both um, and the script concordance test has been um, used as a you know valid reliable tool, uh, I'm sure it depends upon how you develop it and and following the steps and everything, uh, but it has been used. So, um, all right. So I want to uh, ask if anybody has any final comments. We're about a minute away from from our top of the hour. I want to give people their Friday back. Um, any uh, final comments? And I can't see the chat. So if any of you see anything in the chat, uh, let me know. I would just say. I hope that someday <laughs> that all paramedic programs have the resources that they do at Monash University and that most of our nursing schools do so that that people can really fully realize these kinds of assessments uh, in our paramedic programs. I would just love for like some of the publishers and uh, people to realize that these are the kinds of questions we need, not mm-hmm. test banks with ridiculousness. Um, we need the time and effort spent in across all the programs on developing these script concordance tests because it's just impossible for me in my little program to do it by myself. Yeah. I appreciate the authors being so detailed in the description of what they did here and actually providing an example question. While we may not go through the validation process to publish this like they did, you could very easily with a group of educators come up with some of the different questions they asked here to to gauge where your students' clinical reasoning skills are. So I think you could repeat some of this in, in a much easier format, maybe less validation, but it's definitely possible. Thank you. Bill, any final comments? 
As always, I thank the authors for their uh, efforts in publishing this. And finally, I hope everyone has a safe, happy, and uh, healthy uh, Memorial Day weekend and remember why it's happening. Yes, thank you. Thank you all for joining us and big thanks to the authors. Um, I can just recommend pull this article, read it and reread it. It's a, a really a great piece of work and it, it's sort of the beginning seeds of more uh, good research in, in uh, education and EMS education. So thanks for joining us. Don't forget, we're going to be live from a credit con on June 2nd. That's next Friday at uh, 11.45 a.m. Eastern, so a little earlier, remember. Uh, you can register for that at prehospitalcare.org, just like you can for all of our other journal clubs. We have another regular journal club this month, uh, or in June, again, Friday, June 23rd. Uh, that's the PCRF Education Research Journal Club. And before that, you can join Dr. Remley Crow, Dr. Tony Fernandez at the PCRF Clinical Journal Club on Monday, June 12th, both of the regular ones are at this time, 10 a.m. Pacific, noon central. And uh, archives, uh, journal clubs, remember, you can find on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF journal club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.